John 16:33. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said, "I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world." Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word has power through the Spirit to raise people to new life, has the power to revive people, it has the power to wake up sleepy Christians, it has the power to change us from the inside out. Your word and your Spirit alone, not me, not my words, not my energy but your word and your spirit. So I pray that your spirit would come powerfully now and that your word would go out with clarity and with boldness and that it would be received with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened 2,000 years ago, how does that help me today? How does the fact that Jesus, there's a, there a time, a day, a Sunday morning, a, right, first day of the week, early in the morning, it was still dark out when the women went to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there, so we know it was even before that that he rose. How does that event, when Jesus, that dead corpse began to move and he rose and walked out of the tomb, how does that change your life? It's true that when we die, or when Jesus comes, whichever happens first, there's only two things we're going to need. We're all going to need these two things. We're going to need the death of Jesus to conquer all of our sins, and we're going to need the resurrection of Jesus to conquer our death. But what about right now? What about today? What about this week? What about tomorrow when you wake up? It's one thing to have a service where we get together and and we sing some great songs and we have some amazing musicians and worship leaders and we can have this rah-rah service and moment here. But what about when we wake up Monday morning and we have the week facing us? And we don't know exactly what the week presents to us. It's going to be filled with some mundane things. It's going to be filled with joys. And it's also going to be filled with trouble. What about when we face that? What does the resurrection have to do with that? Well, it has a lot to do with it. It does affect our lives on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Thursday night and Saturday in the afternoon. It ought to affect every area, every moment of our lives. The Apostle Paul in in 1 Corinthians 15 said he lived in such a way that it would be, it was utterly insane unless Jesus rose from the dead. He said in another place, if the dead are not raised, if Jesus wasn't raised, and therefore we're not going to be raised someday, he said, let's just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. In other words, let's just live normal safe, non-eventful lives. Let's just live normal lives if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So the question is, how does Christ's resurrection help me next week? Especially 
in a world of trouble. And one thing, I hopefully we know intuitively by experience and from the New Testament is that the resurrection of Jesus emphatically does not mean that he rids our lives of all trouble. We know that. In fact, I don't know if you noticed the promise that we have in this verse. There's one promise in this verse. John 16, 33. It's not a promise you would expect, and it's probably not one you'd choose. The promise is this. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise given to us. In the world, you will have tribulation. This is not exactly the Bible verse you'd find on the coffee mug in the local Christian bookstore, right? Or in the the birthday card section. Happy birthday. In the world, you'll have trouble, right? It's not exactly one you'd find on a card. Not Not one you'd probably hear on Christian television either. But Jesus wants us to know this. Jesus wants us to know this in light of the resurrection, We need to grasp this in order to know the power of the resurrection for Monday morning and Wednesday night and all throughout the week for the rest of our lives. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. Now the word world doesn't mean physical planet like the globe. It means the system of evil that dominates the creation. Right? It's, it's the system of evil that dominates the world, the earth, and dominates humanity. It's the satanically operated, demonically infested world of sin and evil. It's this complex of evil that dominates human life that Jesus says, we're going to have trouble here. We're going to have tribulation here. The Apostle John, who wrote, obviously penned the words that Jesus said here in John 16, he also wrote the letter 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 2, he talks about this idea of world again. And he says, you've maybe heard these words, Do not love the world or the things of the world. For whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these things are not from the Father. They are from the world. So Jesus says, in this world that is fallen and broken because of sin. Ever since Adam sinned, he plunged all of humanity and all of creation into sin. Under the effects of sin, I should say. And in this world, you will have tribulation. Now the Greek word for tribulation can be translated distress, affliction, persecution, anguish. And it is translated all of these things in, in the New Testament. It's a pretty general word. But most simply, this word means pressure. You ever feel pressure in life? Like all the time? I mean, small pressures? Really big pressures? Is there, is there ever a, a, a complete day where you don't have some pressure? In this world, you will have pressure. The verb form means to press together. Sometimes life feels like we're, we're pressed under a thousand pound boulder or we're being pressed together by two thousand pound boulders. Right? We're being squeezed. Jesus essentially is saying that life in this world, in this present evil age, 
is like living in a pressure cooker. You will experience trouble. Trouble at work, trouble in relationships, financial trouble, trouble because of your faith. You believe in Jesus, it's going to cost you at times, so there's going to be trouble there. There's going to be trouble in your family, with your children, your marriage perhaps. There's going to be mental trouble, pressure, psychological trouble and pressure, physical trouble. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be pressure. And so, you can take it to the bank. It's promised. It's going to be trouble. Paul, when he was traveling through Asia Minor and was strengthening disciples in Acts chapter 14, he was going to Iconium and Lystra and Antioch, and he was encouraging these disciples to continue in the faith, telling them this. This was like Discipleship 101 for Paul. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what he was telling these, these disciples, right? Stay, stay faithful, continue in the faith. It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So you will go through trouble. We shouldn't be surprised when it comes. We often are, but we shouldn't be. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Don't be surprised. Don't think, this is strange. Jesus has risen from the dead triumphantly. These things like this shouldn't happen to me. Don't don't think it's strange when you go through trouble. Pressure, trouble, tribulation is inevitable. What isn't inevitable is a godly response. Right? Trouble's inevitable. Godly response is not. One, the most natural way to respond to trouble is anger. We've all done this. I ha- I, I've done this. All of these. I, this list I wrote down, it, it's because this is the way that I can respond to trouble. Maybe you can too. Anger, frustration, fear, Anxiety, passivity, bitterness, despair, self-pity, self-preservation, isolation, and so forth. These are ways that we can and sometimes and maybe oftentimes do respond to trouble. Jesus here tells us to respond to the pressures of life that stalk us in a very very different way. So the promise is, in the world, you will have trouble. But that's not all he says. He says, but take heart. But take heart. Other translations, I think the New American Standard, and I, uh, no, New American Standard says, take courage. But take courage. The new, or the old King James Version, I love the way it puts this. Be of good cheer. You will have trouble in the world, but be of good cheer. It literally means this. Cheer up. Cheer up. You're going to have trouble in the world. You're going through it now. You're going to have more in the future, but cheer up. Now, I think it carries the idea of cheerful courage. To have cheerful 
courage. Not a chipper kind of cheer. Just put a smile on your face and pretend everything's good. But a deep sense of well-being and joy in the Lord. A cheerful courage. Jesus says, cheer up. You're going to have trouble, but cheer up. Now this, quite frankly, might sound rather weak. A weak response to the troubles of life. If you're going through a difficult situation and I come along and I say, hey, cheer up. You might feel like smacking me. Like you have no idea what I'm going through. What are you talking about, cheer up? It might sound a little bit like, hey, look on the bright side of things. Hey, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe. Right? Let's find the silver lining. It sounds like one of these, you know, but Jesus isn't a self-help guru. He is the eternal son of God. He's the sovereign savior of the universe. He says, cheer up. Now, if I say that to you, it doesn't seem like much consolation because I'm not very powerful. I'm not powerful at all. But if the sovereign savior of the universe says, cheer up, then we want to listen up. And Jesus says, trouble is coming. You will go through trouble in this world, but cheer up. I want you to to know two things about this word that's translated take heart. It's it's a tharseo is the Greek word. It's translated take heart here in ESV. It's translated take courage or be of good cheer. First, I want you to know that this is in the imperative mood. In other words, Jesus is not giving a suggestion. Jesus is giving a command. Jesus says, you're going to have trouble in the world, that's a promise, but I command you, take heart, cheer up, be of good cheer, take courage. He's commanding, it's an imperative, it's not a nice suggestion. This is not a well-intentioned but powerless pep talk, right? Jesus, again, is not some self-help guy trying to get people to just feel a little bit better about things. He is sovereign and powerful. He's the king, and he commands us to cheer up and to take courage. But second, the second thing I want you to know about this word that's translated take heart is that it's used seven times in the New Testament. It's not used very often. It's not a very common word. And every time it's used, Jesus is the one talking. Right? So Jesus, he's walking on water. Matthew, Mark have these parallel story, right? Uh, accounts of Jesus walking on water. His disciples are in a boat. And they see someone walking on the water. And they do what you and I would do. They start freaking out. And Jesus says, take heart. It's me. It's okay. Only Jesus can command us to take heart, take courage, cheer up when we face trouble. And so Jesus does command us to do that. This cheerful courage is not the absence of fear. It's not the absence of trouble, as we've already seen. But rather, it is the judgment that something else is more important than your trouble. There's something else bigger Something more important than your trouble, than your fears, than the things that cause you anxiety. Jesus gives us good reason to cheer up. 
And so in one sense, it's not merely a command, but it's a promise. It's a promise. Jesus commands us to be of good cheer, to take heart. But it's an implicit promise too, I think. In in other words, I think Jesus is saying, cheer up because I'm about ready to tell you something that's going to put all of your trouble, past, present, and future, into perspective. And here's what he says. In the world, you're going to have trouble, but cheer up. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. This system of evil that seems to be dominated by Satan and demonic forces and is under the influence of evil and sin, I have conquered it. Paul uses this same word that's translated overcome in Romans 8 when he says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So Jesus is saying, you will have trouble in the world, but take heart. I have conquered it all. I have overcome it. I have defeated it. I am victorious over it. Now the disciples, when Jesus spoke these words, wouldn't have fully understood or maybe wouldn't have understood hardly at all what Jesus was saying because the crucifixion hadn't happened yet. The resurrection hadn't happened yet. But afterward, they would have understood the victory of Jesus. I mean, think about, we're going through the book of Acts. Think about what was the message that these early Christians proclaimed everywhere they went. This crucified Savior has been raised from the dead. That was their message. And we know him. And can we tell you about him? This message of the crucified and risen King Jesus is the message that turned the world upside down in the first century and has ever since. And it is the message that can turn your world upside down or maybe right side up. Right? Maybe, maybe it turns everything right side up. The victory of his resurrection, the overcoming of our king. And here's what we need to understand. When I was thinking about how strange this statement sounds. He says, you're going to have trouble in the world, but don't worry, take heart, because I have overcome the world. It almost sounds like, imagine my kids coming to me and say, Dad, I am starving. I'm really, really hungry. And I said, take heart. I have had plenty to eat. (laughs) Okay? But I'm hungry. Right? You will have trouble in this world. Take it to the bank. But take heart. I have overcome the world. How How do we connect those things? Here's how. The victory of Jesus, the overcoming, triumphant victory of Christ wasn't just for him, but it was for all who trust in him. It's this amazing truth. Paul unpacks it probably the most in his epistles, but it's this amazing truth of being united to Christ. Paul uses this phrase over and over and over again in his in his letters, being in Christ. 
or in Him, or in Christ Jesus. And here's what it means. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are united to Him in all of His redemptive work on your behalf. So when we baptize someone, they go down underwater, representing union with Jesus in His death. The old man is buried with Christ. And when they come up out of the water, it represents or symbolizes being raised to newness of life with Christ. So when Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world, we need to understand that what he's saying is his victory isn't just for himself, but it is for you and I as well. Even as we walk through this world with lots of trouble. So cheer up. Right? Christ has risen from the dead. And he didn't rise from the dead just for himself. But he has done it for you as well. You didn't earn it. He did. And there's the massive implications of understanding that he overcame for us. Massive implications for Monday morning. Later this afternoon when you're with family. And maybe you're around people that are just a little harder to be around. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes us. It changes everything about us. So back to our original question. Way back at the beginning. What does the reality of Jesus' words, take heart, I have overcome, what does that mean for us today? What is the resurrection of Jesus? How does that change our lives today? in amazing ways. And I just want to take the rest of our time this morning, just another hour and a half or so. I'm joking. It's April Fool's Day. Come on. Um, I want to take the remainder of our time and just unpack what does the resurrection of Jesus, how does his overcoming mean our overcoming? What effects does the resurrection have for us now? I have several. We'll see how far I get. Number one, because Christ has overcome, you can know freedom from condemnation now. Not someday. Not someday in the future. Not when you maybe get your act together or overcome this particular vice or whatever. You can know freedom from condemnation now. Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Later in Romans 8, Paul says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? I am convinced that so many genuine, truly believing Christians, when I say that, I mean they really do believe in Christ, live under a cloud of guilt and condemnation nearly every single day. Christ has risen. And so you can walk in freedom from that today. Here's what it says. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Because Jesus died and even more because he is raised and he is alive at God's right hand, 
We are free from condemnation. We can know that God is for us 100% now and forever. Think that would change your week? I know it would change mine. To walk in that every moment of every day? Number two, because Christ has overcome, you can know, you can know the joy of forgiven sins now. Amen. Right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's meaningless, and you are still in your sins. But Christ has overcome. Christ has been raised, and therefore you are not in your sins if you believe in Him. Your sins, the Bible says, Psalm 103 says, have been removed as far as the east is from the west, which is a really long ways. In other words, they're nowhere to be found. They've been buried in the depths of the sea. What difference does this make in our lives? All the difference in the world. It is unforgiven sin that weighs people down with guilt. It really is. Sigmund Freud, kind of the grandfather or father of pop psychology, hated God, was not a believer. But he did, I think, make an important observation. He said, man's fundamental problem is guilt. And so what we need to do is we need to eradicate the thought of God because you know, it's this holy God and his standards that make people feel guilty. We need to get rid of God and just tell people they have a psychological problem and give them medicine. Wow. Think of how many people have bought into that. It is unforgiven sin that weighs people down with guilt. It is unforgiven sin that will keep people out of the kingdom and send people to hell forever. Our biggest problem is the wrath of God against sin. That's our biggest problem. Is God's righteous and good and holy anger against sin. But if we are no longer in our sins, because, and the wrath of God has been absorbed on our behalf through Jesus, then we can say with David... How blessed is the man whose sins are covered, whose whose transgressions have been taken away. How blessed is the man against whom his sins will never be counted against him. Substitute the word happy for blessed. How happy is that man? Are you that happy person whose sins have been taken away? Are you that happy person against whom the Lord will never count sins against you? Then you know what? That changes Monday morning, doesn't it? We have trouble in this world, but the, 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 infinitely the, the biggest trouble has been taken care of. Number three. Because Christ has overcome, you can know and experience and live in a power 
To live for God now. To live for Him. Sins have been taken away. There's no condemnation. And now, because Christ is alive and we've been raised with Him, we can know this new power to live for Him. Ephesians 1 says that, verses 18, 19, somewhere around there, it says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work toward us. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Listen to what Romans 6 says. And here's, here's where I want, I want you to get this point. You have power to say no to sin now. Christians have power through the resurrection and this resurrection life that is in us now to say no to sin and say yes to God and yes to righteousness. Here's how Paul puts it. Don't, do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, in these bodies. Do not present your members, hands, feet, eyes, ears, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves, all of you, to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments for righteousness. If you, are, if you belong to Christ, if you trust in Him, you have been brought from death to life. Present yourself to God daily. I'm alive to you, God, because of Christ. Because He's risen. I'm alive to you. And my members now are instruments of righteousness. There's power through the resurrection to live this new life that Christ has earned for us. Number four, because Christ has overcome the gift we have received the gift of the indwelling spirit now. Right now. You don't have to wait till you become hyper super spiritual to receive the spirit. You, if you believe in Christ, you have received the gift of the indwelling spirit right now. Acts 2, 32 and 33, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost said, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, which was the Holy Spirit manifested through people praising in unknown languages. The gift that Jesus pours out is not the gift of tongues preeminently. It is the Spirit of God that has been given to believers who believe in Jesus Christ. It says we are sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, by faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that from Paul's writings in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that because of this, we are now called temples of the living God and that God's Spirit dwells in us. That's amazing. Does that change Monday morning? Does that change your outlook on the week? Moms with a bunch of kiddos at home? And all of the wonderful troubles that come along with that? Does that change your outlook on the week when you are facing deadlines at work? Or maybe we have some students here, you're facing finals or midterms or a big test, does that change things? It 
I hope so. It should. Number five, because Christ has overcome, we have meaning in life now. We actually have purpose. Our lives matter. Right? Amen. Our lives matter. Here's what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you have a bit of time later today, we'll carve out time. Do this. This would be really good exercise for you. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's the, it's the most lengthy treatise on the resurrection in all the Bible. 58 verses. It's amazing. Absolutely stunning. You know, Jenny read some of it earlier. Moved. Heard of tears and many others here to tears, right? Where is your sting, O death? Right? But the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, after what Jenny read, she stopped at verse 57. At the, the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 almost seems out of place. Kind of. Because you would think after this massive crescendo, right? There's, there's no... Christ has triumphed over the grave, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus who gives us the victory. Then it says this, Therefore, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You would think after... You would think 58 would say something like, let's go sing a worship song or something. Therefore, brothers, sing, sing, sing. But it doesn't say that. It says, therefore, brothers, because Christ has been raised and we've been given this victory in him. See all of your life in light of that as having eternal purpose. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Everything you do... In the Lord, everything you do for his sake and for his glory and for the good of others and out of agape love for others, all of it, all of it has purpose. None of it, not one thing is in vain. Not one thing. Here's the way Jesus put it. Even giving a cup of cold water to someone in his name will not be forgotten in the resurrection. That's amazing. A cup of water? Who can't do that? Your life has meaning. Number six, because Christ has overcome, you can know freedom from the fear of death now. Jesus said, John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You live, you're living, you believe in Jesus in one very real sense. You will never die. You breathe your last here, you go to be with the Lord immediately. You go to be with him. But then Jesus, after he makes this massive, amazing statement, I am the resurrection and the life, he turns to Martha, who he's speaking to, and he says this, do you believe this? 
do you believe this? And her answer is amazing. It's great. She says, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe you are the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Then shed off that massive burden of the fear of dying. Hebrews 2 says that that many are enslaved by the fear of death. There's a guy a long time ago, he won a a, um, Pulitzer Prize, I believe. I'm trying to remember what his name is. He wrote a book about this, though, about how death haunts every person. He was not a Christian either. So we would say death haunts every person until they meet the resurrection and the life. And then they can know freedom. We sang it earlier. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Number seven, because Christ has overcome, we can know the presence and protection of Jesus now. We can know his presence and his protection right now. Matthew 28, verse 20, this is part of the Great Commission. It's the very last words of the Great Commission, the very last words of the book of Matthew. Jesus gathered his disciples to him. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Then this this phrase, this sentence, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you, not just generally with us, kind of with us in mind and heart. And I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. So it's not like having a teddy bear with you that you look at, it's like, oh, it makes me feel kind of warm and fuzzy. This is the sovereign Lord who has all authority in heaven And on earth, he is with you always to the end of the age. You could not be more secure than knowing that this one is with you always to the end of the age. Number eight, because Christ has overcome, Satan is defeated now. Sam Storm says the resurrection is the Father's amen to the sons, it is finished. So Christ, dying words on the cross, it is finished. When he was raised from the dead, it's the Father's amen. Colossians 2.15 says that, um, that the rulers and principalities have been disarmed and have been put to open shame because Christ has triumphed over them. Through the cross and resurrection, there is a real Victory over Satan and over demonic evil. But make no mistake, we do have a real enemy, but he is a defeated one. Christ has triumphed over the devil. I've heard some people explain it this way. I find this, this analogy falls apart at some point, but it's kind of helpful. Um, World War II. When, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, it's called D-Day, I think it's June 6th, 
44, maybe, something like that. Is that right, John? You're a historian. Okay, June 6, 1944. Got it, okay. They stormed the beaches of Normandy. D-Day was a decisive victory for the Allies. It was all but over. And yet, victory in Europe day was not for another 10 or 11 months. It was a long time. So the enemy was, the, the Axis powers in Europe were defeated in a sense, and yet it wasn't consummated for a little while later. The devil is a defeated foe. He, is, he may harass you. He will harass you. He may accuse you and certainly will. He may tempt you and certainly will do that. He may even murder Christians. Jesus says he, he will do that. He's called the murderer from the beginning. But because we know that through the cross and resurrection he is a defeated enemy, we can say with Martin Luther in his song, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Listen to this. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Through the cross and resurrection, Jesus, or excuse me, Satan is a defeated enemy and his final doom is at hand. It's guaranteed. Number nine. Because Christ has overcome, we can have a living hope now in a glorious future. 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Biblical hope points us to the future. And because it's Christian hope. It's hope rooted in the historical events of Christ's death and resurrection. It is rooted in reality and absolutely will happen. Our hope is not, it's not throwing up a wish. It is guaranteed. Our inheritance that awaits us in the future is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And if you believe this, because Christ has been raised, it will empower your life now. It will give you a living hope now. And finally, number 10, because Christ has been raised, because Christ has overcome, you can know real comfort now. That the trouble that afflicts you and haunts you will someday be swallowed up in the victory of Jesus. Tim Keller said, Christ's resurrection not only gives you hope for the future, it gives you hope to handle your, your scars right now. Our troubles are real, and they're deeply painful at times, and we shouldn't deny that, But we are often tempted to think that our troubles, our pressures, the tribulations we are going through, we're we're tempted to think that they're decisive. And they're not. They're not decisive. Not Not for those who belong to Jesus. Not for those who have overcome with him. 
Jesus Christ is decisive. His resurrection is decisive. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, said this. I love this, this sentence. He says, Some mortals say that some temporal suffering, excuse me, say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. We're tempted to think no future bliss will ever make up for this present sorrow, this trouble that I know now. But be comforted that heaven, when once attained, will turn backwards and turn even the agony of life's worst troubles now into glory. And isn't that what 1 Corinthians 15.54 is saying when it says, death is swallowed up in victory? What is the greatest trouble that all of us face? It is the last enemy, death. And Paul says here that death itself will be swallowed up in victory at Christ's second coming. So, beloved, Christ has risen. He has overcome. And, and through faith in him, we overcome too. Through faith in Christ, we are overcomers as well. 1 John 5, 4 says, This is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Our faith. Because our faith connects us with Christ and all that he is for us. It connects us to his victory. Faith connects us to our conquering and risen king. So hear these words again. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Let's pray.